You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem, and I'm your host, Hanok Teller. Today we have a very, very special guest, but I'm going to keep you in suspense because I'm going to bring him right into our story just at the right moment in a proper junction. Up until now, I've been trying my earnestly hardest to teach you history, and we're so excited that today we're going to have someone who experienced history, and by every metric, he actually made history. So where we left off was that just as Jews were being rounded up in Palestine, what happened was is that the most successful assault of the United Resistance Movement, coordinating both the Haganah, the Irgun, and the Lehi, took place on June 16 and 17, 1946, when there were 11 coordinated attacks which seriously injured the roads, the bridges, the railroad system, fundamentally the infrastructure in Palestine, which trapped the British. They could not move. They were incensed, and it cost them over 4 million pounds in sterling and damage. At that time, it was an enormous figure. It was just 12 days later, that the British retaliated with Operation Agatha, which the settlement labeled Black Sabbath. The British swarmed across the country, arresting 17,000 soldiers, arresting 2,700 Jews, many of them Zionist from the leadership, Zionist leadership people, and they also took tremendous uh, documents, which Jews were very afraid of, could incriminate them and bring them even uh, to a terrible situation. Let's be a little bit more specific. Uh, they had documents there that could have certainly brought Golda Meir to be hanged, uh, David Ben-Gurion, absolutely Menachem Begin. So there's going to be a great interest to get rid of these documents. As this was occurring in Palestine, at the very same time, on July 4th, 1946, in Kielce, Poland, and our distinguished guest will tell you how to pronounce it properly in Polish, which had a very large population prior to the war. Prior to the war, there were over 10,000 Jews living in Kielce. Kielce also was not only a large city with a large Jewish population, it also was a regional center. It was the head of a county. And uh, after the war, but 200 beleaguered Jews returned to their former community, and most of them were living in a Jewish committee home in the town center. Uh, of these 200 Jews that came back, only a smattering of them were actually from Kiel's, almost all of them been annihilated in the Holocaust. Now, we're talking about July 4th, 1946. One day before on July 3rd, a nine-year-old boy, a Polish boy, Henryk Blaszczyk, if I got that pronunciation correct, like all Polish names, it has about 14 consonants in a row with a smattering of one vowel in this entire long, long, long name. So this non-Jewish boy returned home to Kielce after three days. He left home without informing his parents. To avoid punishment for having wandered off, he told his parents and the police that he had been kidnapped and hidden in the basement of the local Jewish committee building. Police officers went to investigate this alleged crime. As they went to the building, the story already was unraveling. For once, for one, the building did not even have a basement. A large crowd of very angry, anti-Semitic, non-Jewish Poles assembled outside. The mob began to circulate a rumor that Jews were kidnapping Christian children for their blood. Poles were also very, very concerned that the Jews who had returned to Kielce might reclaim their pre-war houses and businesses, which represented a large and substantial portion of downtown Kielce. 
So Polish soldiers and policemen entered the Jewish committee house ostensibly to investigate if this is where the boy had been kidnapped. And as soon as they went inside, they began to shoot the Jewish residents and loot their possessions. Outside, the mob got more and more vicious and heated up and animated. And those Jews from the building running outside, fleeing for their lives to avoid the shooting, were murdered by the mobs outside. They were stoning them, uh, whacking upon them. Again, we have a witness who was actually there. He'll tell us all the details. By day's end, civilians, soldiers, and police had murdered 42 Jews, beating and stoning the remainder, seriously injuring 40. Two non-Jewish Poles died as well, killed by the mob for having offered aid to the Jewish victims. Many of the Jews that were seriously wounded were brought to the hospital. While being transported, they were beaten and they were robbed by the soldiers. The mob subsequently made their way to the hospital and demanded that the main Jews, the wounded inside, be handed over them because they wanted to finish them off. The pogroms spread all over town until, again, our distinguished guest will explain how it was eventually arrested and halted. A Jewish mother and her baby were dragged from their home and murdered in broad daylight. There were also attacks on Jewish rail passengers traveling to Kielce on that day. In exquisite tragedy, after all the Polish Jewry had endured during the war, somehow, miraculously surviving the Holocaust, the smallest little remnant, a medieval blood libel yet again resulted in more Jewish martyrs, perpetrated by their own neighbors and countrymen. In the death announcements that were plastered, seven names, they didn't even know the names of the victims, so they wrote instead of their names, their numbers that had been engraved on their flesh. They had survived Auschwitz, where they were engraved and branded like animals. They survived the Germans, but they could not survive the Poles. And a baby, which didn't have a number, was simply called the baby. Kielce's Catholic clergy, who were silent during the war, had no change of heart one year later. They were unsympathetic to the massacre and insinuated the lethal absurdity that Jews require Christian blood for their baking their matzot, for their, for their bread for Passover. Of course, of course, nothing could be more absurd, nothing could be more forbidden. Okay, I'm now really delighted to bring on to the show uh, one of my, definitely my heroes, a close friend and a neighbor, uh, Mr. Jose Lefkowitz. Mr. Jose Lefkowitz, his real name at birth was Yosef. After living in South America, and uh, after the war, he changed his name, he adopted his name to Jose. And I'll just give you a little bit of background about Mr. Lefkovich. The Germans managed to murder Jose's entire family. He was born in, in, uh, in well, gosh, he was born in, Jose, where were you born? Jalosice. Jalosice. How could I forget that? Lived in Krakow. And then, but life. he lived in Krakow. There we go. And he's from Krakow. They managed to murder his entire family, as well, well over 90% of Polish Jewry, but they did not succeed in diminishing Jose's joie de vivre, his sense of humor, his love of the Lord, and his warmth. For all of my years studying the Holocaust, I will never, ever understand how so many of these people who survived were able somehow to brush the ashes off their shoulders and live such productive lives, raise beautiful families, engage in gainful employment and good businesses. And Jose is such a fantastic example in this regard. Uh, I've spoken to Jose many, many times. I can never hear enough times of how he managed to be the one who captured that monster, Amon Goth, who was the commandant of Plashev. Plashev is the concentration camp, the, the slave labor camp featured 
in Schindler's List, as a rule, the majority of the mass murderers went unpunished. Only a handful of them were captured and brought to justice, and Jose single-handedly caught this monster and brought him to justice. Aside from that, Jose saved over 600 children, looking after them after the war, bringing them from their families which had tried to either adopt them or take them, and he brought them all to Israel. And to this very day, these people that he saved don't even know who he is. Now, many mothers and fathers, that could be you in the audience, we know what it's like to just take care of one toddler, and after two hours, we're going out of our minds for one pranky afternoon. Jose took care of 600 orphans of different ages who resented being clutched from their families, who had looked after them all, and yet he took care of each and every one of them with nurture and care and brought them to lead productive lives in the land of Israel. From my own personal experience, I would divide Holocaust survivors that speak to audiences in two groups. There are those who get up and say, legitimately, you can never understand. They may even repeat that several times. And then there are the ones who don't stop talking. Jose does stop talking, but when he finishes, everyone begs him to continue. Now, he's not the subject of our feature, and pardon me, pardon me, he's also, he's by no means shy, he's the subject of a feature-length film. He also wrote a book, From Ashes to Lachaim. It's a miraculous journey, and again, my pronunciation, beginning in to Krakow, to Plashov, to Auschwitz, to Mauthausen, Austria, Brazil, Paraguay, Argentina, Colombia, and finally to Montreal, Canada, and from there, he came to Israel. If I'm not mistaken, he came, ascended to Israel about 10 years ago. When he came here, his story was so remarkable that Israel Television uh, made a feature about him. He was top headlines. He was joined in Israel by a grandson of his serving the Israeli Defense Forces. And uh, it's hard for me not to focus on him, but I want to just get to the story because, as Jose will take the mic right now and will explain to you what he was doing. Now, he had the wherewithal to try and interrupt what would have been a massacre of every single remnant living in Kielce. Jose, please. I was actually working, rescuing Jewish children from different places, like monasteries, churches, institutions, private homes, and gather them to a certain building in a place called Rapkazdrui, a spa place we got there from the government building. We gathered the children, we educated them there, we take, took care of them, we had nurses, we had psychologists, we had um, a school, we had everything possible there, given by the communist government of Poland, because we were working with a um, very, uh, pr pretending that we are gathering families, we are uniting families together that the Nazis have separated, because to rescue Jews under communism uh, didn't work. The work Jewish was not kosher. <laughs> so we maybe, had maybe explain to the audience why is it that you had to have some ruse, some excuse to allow the communists to try and save, well, they had no interest in saving Jews. What was your... You couldn't, you couldn't go and say that you want to have a permit. We had to have good papers, a permission from the security service. We, we were actually became security men because we, otherwise we couldn't have worked. Um, why didn't we work as such, rescue Jewish children? Because that was not kosher. So we had, I had 
I had to find an excuse on the what Certain headline, things. how to work. So my headline was, why want to unite families that the Nazis have separated? But there were no families. The families were all executed during the war. They were gassed. We have to find those children to save them. I figured that we lost so much in the Holocaust. After the war, we cannot afford losing more. So we had to rescue whatever we could. So we, we did that. At the same time, being in, in, in the place that we were living and working, we heard that something happens in Kelce, a big city. We didn't know exactly what. The communication was not so great at, at, at those years. Um, but we heard that, that the security forces were alarmed that some unrest is happening in Kelce. We didn't know exactly what it was. So all the security forces started from different places to, to start going to Kelce. We had, we had weapons in order to protect those children because there was the anti... We had to... I hated the communists, but we had to work under the communists. So we were considered as communists. And there was... In Poland, the underground Polish, the, the Polish government in exile cult, which their, their seat was in London, England, uh, under a certain uh, general. Anyway, so those, they were called Armia Krajowa, AK, AK, that was the name, known, they were known as such. They were doing all kinds of sabotage, and they attacked our compound three times and shooting in, uh, during the night. So we had to be very vigilant. We had cannons on the roof. We had weaponry, uh, automatic weapons, and we had a tank. When we heard about that unrest in Kelce, we drove with a, can, with a tank into Kelce. And we became, when we came in there, it was just terrible. A wild mob, terrible, wild, yelling, screaming, all on the road, marching. So we went on the road with a tank and dispersed them. But we, I saw what they had in their hands, all kind of axes and, and uh, pipes and uh, uh, all kind of uh, different uh, sticks and also also things that you work in the field, like the sickle. Hose and, and sickles. Yeah, and all kind of those things. We drove in through it, and other security forces came also. The police also mobilized, and it took a long time to, to disperse that wild thing. Now, what happened? We, we tried to find out what happened, and then we, then we find out that some Jewish... We, there was a house there in Kelce where the refugees, the survivors, some survivors, had no home where to go. So the, the community arranged through the government where the people should come. And, and there was, uh, I was in the building. I saw the, the people and everything. And, and I heard when we came, there was already dead people there. I don't remember how many, 40 or 50, 40-something, 50, 50 people dead, wounded people. 
Rav Teller knows exactly details. I I I I I knew details, but over this is a story of seventy-five years now, and I didn't very much dwell into it. But I I remember the scene before my eyes: the wild mob, and I remember the building, and I remember the people that I saw there in the building, and I heard that there were dead people. Um, in, in that mob, it was it was a terrible situation. And and when when I after that when we heard that there were so many killed for for nothing because that boy was some somehow lost and he disappeared after after he disappeared and then he came back in a few days. After he came back, the mob was still wild trying to kill Jews. They were, they were officially yelling Jews. I wasn't known as Jews because I was working there with non-Jews, with soldiers and with a security agent from the, from the Ube, Ube Spiechenstva Painstva. This is the security of the country. I was working with them. So, um, but I heard the Jiddish, all kind of... Uh, this is so uh, remarkable that 40, 42 were murdered, 40 were very seriously injured, how? and had you not showed up... The what? As many as were murdered, had you not showed up with your arms, it could have been so much worse. Uh, can't well, say you got there in the nick of time, but uh, all the, whoever survived when, is when thanks we to your idea. When we came there, we had dispersed the crowd, and it, it, it slowly died down. We was just there for the day over there. Then we drove back at night. Uh, that was the end of it. Before we came, there was a lot of things. Okay, but so now we were, when we were alarmed through the, the security forces that something happened there that they didn't know exactly what happened. They thought maybe a revolution or something. The communists were very sensitive, you know, of um, if something happened there. They wanted right away to, to uh, supreme, to, to suppress to, uh, it. Press it, yeah. Okay. I just want to say that uh, I didn't I neglected to mention earlier that our esteemed guest, he sounds like a young man, and he is my favorite young man, but he's also 95 years old, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, we're, we're really hearing firsthand history. I'm going to take the story from here and just be aware of the fact that uh, just like Kishinev for the Jews of the Russian Empire, the Kielce pogrom was a watershed for the scant remnant of Polish Jewry. Then it became very manifest that remaining in Poland was a death trap for them. Tens of thousands of Polish Jews just left their homes and they headed to the borders to get out of Poland en route to Palestine. Czechoslovakia humanely offered them aid and passage, but the British stopped them when they arrived at the occupied zone in Austria. The mass of refugees was growing, but they had nowhere to go because the doors of Palestine were shut because of the execrable white paper which forbade Jewish immigration. We come back very briefly to the Black Sabbath, where the leadership of the Jewish settlement in Israel was jailed, and the British had seized so many documents of the Jewish agency which they could use to prosecute the leadership of the Jewish settlement in Palestine. The volatility was incredible, and it was clear that the region was just about to explode. Word reached back to the leadership of the Jewish, of the Jewish leadership of uh, the resistance, the Haganah, the Irgun, the Lehi, that all these papers that were seized on, the, seized on the Black Sabbath, which the British called Operation Agatha, were being stored in the King David Hotel. The leadership believed that the British had enough documents in their possession that they could incriminate many leaders of the settlement 
and have them hanged, as we mentioned earlier, such as Golda Meir, perhaps David Ben-Gurion, and definitely, definitely Menachem Begin. And we'll have to pick up the story next time. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.